0: Islam's fourth Caliph, Ali, can be considered one of the most revered figures in Islamic history. His nearly universal portrayal in Muslim literature as a pious authority obscures centuries of contestation and the eventual rehabilitation of his character. In Opposing the Imam, the Legacy of the Nawasib in Islamic Literature, published by Cambridge University Press in 2021, Nabil Hussein examines the enduring legacy of the Nawasib, early Muslims who disliked Ali and his descendants. The Nawasibs participated in politics and scholarly discussions on religion at least until the 9th century. However, their virtual disappearance in Muslim societies has led many to ignore their existence and the subtle ways in which their views subsequently affected Islamic historiography and theology. By surveying medieval Muslim literature across multiple genres and traditions, including Sunni, Mutazili and Ibadi, Hussein reconstructs the claims and arguments of the Nawasib and illuminates the methods that Sunni scholars employed to gradually rehabilitate the image of Ali from a villainous character to a righteous one. In our conversation, we discussed approaching early Muslim sources, the spectrum of anti-Alid positions, Ibn Taymiyyah's take, the rehabilitation of Ali, and the legacy of anti-Alid sentiment within Sunni theology. I'm one of your co hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. And now here's my conversation with Nabil Hussein on Opposing the Imam, the Legacy of the Nawasib in Islamic Literature. Welcome, Nabil. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this book. It's uh, certainly an interesting topic and, and not one that comes up uh, kind of in your general uh, discussions of Islam. So I'm, I, I, I found it really fascinating that the sources you're bringing in. Um, before we get into the book, could you tell us a little bit about your intellectual journey, though? What brought you to the study of Islam? What brought you to your interest in these uh, kind of early histories and, and sources?
1: Sure. I began my research at the University of Virginia uh, uh, in terms of uh, studying with Abdulaziz Sachedina, where I became very fascinated with early Islamic history, uh, and specifically the Caliphate and uh, insurrectionists from the descendants of the Prophet Muhammad, who uh, were uh, who became quite famous. And so, one of them was Zayd ibn Ali, uh, ibn Hussein ibn Ali, so the grandson of uh, Hussein Ibn Ali uh, and the grandson, a great-grandson of the prophet. And uh, I did my undergraduate uh, thesis, uh, looking at uh, his life and his legacy and Arabic texts related to his work. And then after that, I received uh, the opportunity to study in Syria. I, I received a Fulbright where I uh, pursued uh, research related to the early caliphate. I looked at the caliphate of Hassan Ibn Ali, the grandson of the prophet. And I pursued a study of Shi'ism uh, with traditionally trained Shi scholars. And then I also visited Yemen to study with uh, traditionally trained uh, Sunni scholars in Hadramot, Mot, um, where I pursued this um, interest in studying uh, the family of the Prophet, the culture around them, uh, descendants of the Prophet, uh, those Muslims who cultivated um, this zeal and love uh for that family and you know why was it that they were interested in that i think that that really fascinated me i, I also became interested in genealogy and family trees uh, uh especially those uh, who claim descent from the prophet so i received um uh any or license to um study the uh, these family trees and evaluate their authenticity and so on so i did that for many years and then i came back and did my uh, master's at Harvard, where I considered the question, why is it that those who claim descent from the prophet, when you um, study their Y chromosomes, you see that they are coming from different sources. In fact, that, you know, they don't come from a, a single ancestor uh, as they claim. And, you know, what led to this uh, mythology or what led to these uh, uh, to these histories in which people had these memories, but in fact, uh, They have these disparate origins. Um, And then from there, I went on to Princeton where I studied with uh, Professor Hussein Mudarsi and I was also trained by Michael Cook. And uh, I benefited very much uh, from their guidance in studying uh, early Islamic history and I guess the intellectual history related to it um, and and the use of sources. And from there, I asked the question, um, how is it that you had individuals uh, like Ali ibn Abi Talib, uh, the fourth Caliph in Islamic history, who is revered today, but there was a time in which he was reviled in Islamic history. How did that transition occur? Uh, How was it that these characters were rehabilitated over time? How does someone go from villain to saint uh, in these, uh, you know, in religious historiography and then also in religious communities? And you know, Ali ibn Abi Talib is just one example of that you had his predecessor, Uthman, you had a successor or a subsequent ruler, Muawiyah, who also was rehabilitated in different ways. And so I, I just continued digging and excavating following that question of uh, why, uh, you know, how could it be the case that there were uh, uh, Muslims who opposed this caliphate? What were their grievances? What were the arguments they made against them? And then how did this process unfold in which, um, even if we don't really have Muslims who claim that today, uh, the vast majority of them revere him, how did that process take place in which um, he came to be respected um, in the Muslim community?
0: Yeah, it's clear to see um, how this, this project emerged <clears throat> from that kind of your, your own intellectual genealogy um, not only in the content, but also in, in some of the questions that you're, you're asking and the way you kind of probe your sources. Um, and I wanted to, to start there because <clears throat> you're thinking about early Islamic sources and you're, you're kind of using uh, literary analysis, questioning hi- historicity. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how, how you're approaching your sources and what you believe... Uh, hadith and, uh, and other early Islamic sources uh, can tell us about the past.
1: Right. The way that I view this literature, it's that you have uh, authors, you have uh, um, believers or those who identify with this, uh, with a religious community, and they're making faith-based claims. They're making faith-based assumptions about uh, the existence of God, the righteousness of uh, the people that they are... Um, Revering, Um, And so with those assumptions, there are myths tied to the claims that they make um, that uh, explain the status quo, explain their presence, right? You know, when you have, for example, let's, you know, take it to the caliphate, when you have individuals saying that before the prophet died, you know, he appointed uh, Abu Bakr to lead the prayers. Uh, for the community, and this was a sign, or this was an implicit um, sign of his approval uh, for Abu Bakr to succeed him. Uh, When I look at those types of texts, I see a community saying, I am a follower of Abu Bakr, and this is, uh, this story explains uh, why I'm a follower of Abu Bakr. Basically, instead of turning to a uh, a book on, you know, catechisms or on creed. Uh, what I can see from this literature, what we can learn from this literature, it's that it's ideology or it's theology uh, in narrative form. You know, drawing on Bruce Lincoln, that these uh, that when believers are writing about this history, it's to explain their beliefs, it's to justify the the present, and you know, these communities are in, are engaging in this process of identity formation. Um, They're engaged in a process of orthodoxy formation and maintenance, right? You know, explaining to themselves and to others what is the right doctrine? How does this world work? um, What is right in the sight of God? Um, And so when you have a report that says that the prophet or that Ali was impeccable in all of these different ways and that he had the closest relationship to the prophet and so on what I understand from those Hadith transmitters and those writers is that this is why I'm a follower of Bali. This is why I am one of his supporters, because he had these types of attributes. And um, so when I look at religious literature, I I very much consider uh, the beliefs of its writers and its transmitters and how they're trying to explain to the world their beliefs and justify their beliefs to the world.
0: Now, you zoom in on a particular kind of subset of uh, claims, the Nawasib, these anti-Alid uh, accounts. Um, can you kind of just give us a flavor of what exactly these are? What what are perhaps some examples of these anti-Alid arguments? Sure.
1: So in terms of uh, anti-Alids, I'd say in early Islamic history, you had uh, a few groups that explicitly uh, argued that Ali had been a criminal, that he was evil and that people shouldn't follow him. And so in terms of his political rivals, you had the Umayyads, right? This was the tribe that uh, represented his predecessor, Uthman, who had been murdered. And so in terms of the Umayyads, uh, it was a very hyper-partisan atmosphere in which Uthman was killed. Uh, This was a time in which violence would beget violence, and that you'd have tribal feuds that would be born from uh, some sort of violence perpetrated against a member of a uh, of a rival tribe. Um, And so when Uthman was assassinated, the Umayyads had a, if you're not with us, you're against us mentality, This very, uh, very much a political, Manichean way of viewing the world. Um, And for them, uh, because Ali had not been a partisan of Uthman, in fact, uh, before Uthman's death, Ali had been a negotiator, a delegate, or someone whom uh, the protesters had used to express uh, their, their grievances. And so Ali had gone back and forth between Uthman and the protesters. And so the Umayyads blamed uh, Ali once uh, these protests uh, ended in, in the death of Uthman as one of those individuals that must have been involved in his death and, or that he, he was culpable, he was responsible for these events that precipitated uh, Uthman's death. And so they, uh, they, they accused him of either planning the assassination or having knowledge of the assassination beforehand or having good relations with those individuals that assassinated Uthman. Uh, So it was was mostly tied to uh, what happened to Uthman, the best that I can gather, uh, in terms of this rivalry. Uh, And then you had uh, Uthmaniyah, or Uthmanis, these pro-three caliph um, uh, uh, Muslims who believed in the legitimacy and the succession of Abu Bakr, Omar, and Uthman. uh, And they viewed Ali as representative of a counterclaim in which the in which religious and political authority, or even legislative authority, uh, was one that was restricted to the family of the prophet, or they believed that they had a better claim to such authority, and they didn't. And that members of this family did not view outsiders as authorities, uh, or if they were authorities, that they were equal to them. Uh, to put it in uh, Sunni legal terms, that everyone was a mujtahid, everyone was an expert, and so there was no need for a member of the family of the prophet to uh, defer to the authority of others in terms of law or theology or so on. So the Uthmaniyah seem to have been a group that said, look, Ali is representative of this counterclaim in terms of authority. And so we will not um, uh, be of his partisans or follow him. And we reject that. We follow Abu Bakr Omar Uthman. And it seems that when this group rebelled against him, uh, the claim was that, like the Umayyads, that he may have been uh, responsible for the death of Uthman, but it seems to have been a larger uh, rejection of his authority as as someone who was making claims to be a ruler or to be um, someone with expertise in Islamic law and theology. Uh, And so the claims that they made of him were ones in which, for example, when the wife of the prophet, uh, Aisha, is allegedly accused of um, infidelity, uh, they say that Ali may have been involved in spreading this slander about her, that this was uh, an accusation that they, uh, that, they, that they leveled against him. Uh, you had individuals saying that he was a munafiq, he was a h- hypocrite, that he was a he was an unbeliever, that he was someone who was uh, destructive to the community in terms of the choices that he made when he claimed a political power, that he was someone who was um, who wrongfully believed that authority should be restricted to the Hashemites, and so they just opposed them all together. And they villainized him, saying that he was responsible for these things. And so they told stories related to this, that he was someone who, for example, didn't worship God five times a day. That he was someone who um, was guilty of misdeeds here and there, uh, minor and major, uh, throughout his life. And so you see this tendency to deprecate him in different ways. Uh, And then you have the Kharijites. Uh, those who had supported his caliphate, but became disillusioned with him when, at the end of the Battle of Siffin, it ended in arbitration, um, and the sense that we get from some of their sources is that they regretted this arbitra- this arbitration agreement that uh, with, that occurred between Ali and Muawiyah, and uh, from there uh, they seceded from his army, and then. Once they continued to, uh, I guess, threaten the security of Kufa or Iraq, uh, according to pro sources, Ali was forced to move against them. They had murdered uh, some civilians uh, for not joining them or in showing their, uh, because those uh, civilians uh, paid allegiance to Ali. They were also viewed as non-believers uh, if Ali was a, now a non-believer, and so the Kharajites had become uh, had this you know extremist zeal in killing those who were partisans or who had pledged allegiance to Ali, and uh, I think a culture of wala and bara or association and disassociation uh, from uh, one's leaders w- was a cultural norm at that time, and so one's one's political or rigid, religious leanings. Um, in this hyper-partisan atmosphere uh, could, could get one killed. And it seems that uh, the Khadijites uh, believed and may have acted in that way. Uh, so the Khadijites claimed that, yes, that he may have started off as a righteous person. He may have been legitimately elected or he may have legitimately come to power. But uh, at the end of his life, he had become someone who was power hungry and he had uh, uh, become misguided. He left. He was no longer uh, following the teachings of the Quran. And so they have a very Puritan way of viewing uh, religion and uh, political authority. And they said that Ali didn't meet those ideals anymore. And so uh, they made claims about uh, different uh Uh, different misdeeds that he that he did as caliph Um, and and from there they disassociated themselves from him saying he's someone whom all Muslims should disavow themselves from from following.
0: Now uh, while it sounds like it could be a clear case of being for or against Ali and his descendants there there really seemed to be a lot of nuance in Kind of different levels of uh, kind of understandings of, of of how to how to interpret his uh, kind of ontological and political uh, reality. Um, so, can can you walk us through some of the different types of interpretations, um, not only in the kind of pro-alid or anti-alid, but but also like where the boundaries between being uh, anti-alid versus anti-Shia might be and and what the relationship between these, these all kind of, how they come together.
1: Right. So one of the things uh, that I do in the first chapter of my book is I lay out a spectrum of about six groups or six views uh, regarding Ali from the most zealously anti-Ali to the zealously pro-Ali. So the first group uh, is made up of, of those Nawasib or anti-Ali or and, you know, Ali's descendants are known as Alids, so I also refer to them as anti-Alids. And this group generally consisted of the Umayyads, the Ottomania, or those pro-three caliph, um, folks who believed Ali never became the fourth caliph, and then uh, these Khabajites. And these were individuals who believed, you know, Ali and his partisans, his, his family, represented this, this villainous group, and... Um, uh, it was necessary to oppose them and to condemn them. Now, when you move to the second category or to the second group, it's a group of people that don't outright condemn Ani, but they oppose any special veneration of him. They tend to say, well, he was a fallible person, he may have committed blunders, and that he may have harmed the Muslim community when uh, he became caliph. And members of this group, in fact, raised doubts on whether Ali actually became a legitimate caliph. Some would say, look, the caliphate went Abu Bakr, Omar Uthman, and then there was four years of turmoil in which there was no caliph. And then Muawiyah is the fourth uh, ruler of the Muslim world. And so you have some pro-three caliphs or Uthmanis who uphold this. So they don't explicitly condemn him, but they say he never there was never a consensus regarding his caliphate. He never became fully uh, legitimate. Um, and then you have the, this third group, uh, which becomes the orthodox position of Sunnism, where Ali is accepted as the fourth rightly guided caliph. Oh, and if I was to identify peoples who had been part of group two, it would be early Ahl al-Hadith of the Levant or some uh, Umayyad-leaning uh, Sunnis in Andalusia, in North Africa. Um, And, you know, perhaps some Ahl al-Hadith, or people of Hadith, or Hadith scholars of the uh, second century Hijri. Now, the third position was one that comes out of, um, I guess, two centuries of debates about Ali, and this is one where Ali is finally accepted as the fourth rightly guided caliph. So the three uh, rightly guided caliph theory expands to include him and the argument that I make is this is in a time uh, during ma'mun's era where ma'mun is actually supportive of this next category known as group four, Toflil Ali where Ali is viewed as the most meritorious Muslim after the prophet. It's in ma'mun's public proclamations of Ali's superiority to all other companions that you had uh, proto-Sunni Hadith scholars who began to appropriate Assimilate uh, pro Ali hadith from Kufa, uh, which you know there are hundreds of, or if not thousands of hadith in his praise uh, that circulated in Kufa, and this pro Ali um, literature or this pro Ali oral tradition want, had been one in which it was usually dismissed or discredited as Shi'i by or pro-3 Caliph Ahl al-Hadith of the Levant. And so uh, Ahmed ibn Humble during this, again, early 200s Hijri uh, is part of a movement to accept this pro-Ali Kufan tradition. And I think, uh, you know, according to Madelung, uh, uh, Professor Qasim Zaman and others, Ahmed ibn Humble, Humble played uh, an important role in getting these Levantine uh, Hadith scholars to accept, to shift from going from pro three caliphs to pro four caliphs um, and accept some of this Kufin uh, literature and praise of Ali. So if group three is one that accepted him as the fourth caliph, group four is one that said, he was the wisest and most meritorious Muslim after the prophet, but they didn't explicitly say, that uh, the prophet had appointed him as his successor. That would be uh, category five or group five, which becomes the orthodox position of Shi'ism, where Ali is the rightful heir to the prophet. Um, He's selected by God and the prophet Muhammad um, to to take on that position as an imam. And then I would say there's a group six made up of gulat or Shi'is that viewed Ali as the manifestation of God. And in these circles, you know, Ali's miraculous power His omniscience or omnipotence are a common motif. And so I'd say the spectrum from group one that held animosity for him all the way to group six that upheld his divinity is representative of um, uh, the views that I encountered in studying uh, early Islamic history and Ali, at least for the first 300 years after the death of the prophet, we see uh, expressions of, all along this, uh, all along the spectrum.
0: Now, um, later in the book, you you zoom into particular figures and kind of contextualize their writing and their, their critiques of Ali and, and his descendants. Um, and you focus on uh, a Mutazilite, uh, and a body author, and then a Sunni author um, in Ibn Tayamiyyah. Can, can you tell us a little bit about why you selected these figures and, and kind of what their perspectives ended up being on Ali and his descendants?
1: Sure. With, uh, right, with the first case study on al jahiz who's this Mu'tazli Basran thinker, active in the 8th and ninth centuries uh, of the common era. I mean, his treatise is great. He writes this Risalet uh, Uthmaniyya, or a, a treatise on the Uthmanis, or so these, you know, pro-three caliph guys. And uh, I dissect his uh, thesis or his treatise for a couple of reasons. First, he lived in a period in which anti-Alaid sentiment still ran high in various parts of the Muslim world. Um, if in you know a previous chapter, I'd been looking at Hadith attributed to the Umayyads or Hadith attributed to Ali's uh, rivals, those texts are, are attributed to them, but they're not actually written um, you know, uh, by those individuals. While with Al-Jahid, he has something closest to what we have of a surviving primary source. It's an extended treatise from someone who is accused of being an anti alid right? He's writing with his own pen, and he explains, using rational arguments and hadith, um, why he rejects attempts to exalt Ali in the way that uh, shes do. Uh, second, Jahad's, uh treatise triggered a number of rebuttals from authors who had condemned him as anti alid And so uh, Asma al wrote a book on uh, al uh, treatise and the response or the rebuttal of a Shi scholar Ibn Tawus, And she looks at all of the themes on how they discuss this question of who was the best successor or the best companion after the Prophet Muhammad. And that book was... Uh, um, probably a formative book and that it was great. It was fascinating for me to read this, you know, Sunishi or Montazilishi uh, debates. I I love reading about these polemics, especially from individuals who uh, are clearly uh, very talented uh, in the discipline that they're engaged in. They're very aware of uh, those texts or those arguments that are relevant to uh, their opponent, so when they engage in these dialectics, it's uh, it's great to watch or it's great to read. Um, but uh, you know, besides Jahat's own, you could say, polemical uh, talent, um, he's a genius in his own right. I mean, he's uh, he refuses to be pinned down as a simple anti-Alid, um, and in other treatises, he provides nuance. So. You know, although this one is a takedown of Shiism and the doctrine that Ali was the natural successor to the Prophet, elsewhere he supports Zaydis in explaining why uh, their position that Ali was the best of the Prophet's disciples was um, uh, was a valid opinion um, or why it was somewhat persuasive. Um, and so, when it comes to studying uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, We see that um, you have an individual who explicitly says that Ali is the fourth rightly guided caliph. But then he takes on this, uh, I mean, he writes this uh, comprehensive rebuttal of Shi'ism that relies on arguments that were first argued by those who opposed Ali's caliphate, you know, that group one in the spectrum that I talked about or those early Muslims who would espouse opposition to any special veneration of Ali, that group two, that may not have ever accepted him as legitimate Caliph. So Ibn Taymiyyah reaches back into this past um, and we see that anti-Alaids have this enduring legacy when we read his work, even though he explicitly says that Ali is a legitimate Caliph. Um, and, and Al-Jahid kind of does that too, where he doesn't want to be called a nasabi or uh, be considered among the Nawasib, So you know, In another treatise, he'll explain why Ali was a legitimate caliph, but in arguing against tafdeel that Ali had been the best, he relies on that legacy of uh, Uthmani arguments uh, and uh, Uthmani framings of Ali's career and life. Um, and so I think that's an important takeaway that I have in reading this, that the anti-Alids have this enduring legacy long after their disappearance, because they come up whenever someone wants to engage in anti-Shi polemics, they'll rely on arguments or framings that are sympathetic to those who had been, um, those who had been anti alid As for the case study on the Ibadis, um, you know, their literary heritage is one of the least discussed in Islamic history. So I was, uh, very intrigued to find works in which, uh, Ali is condemned or criticized uh, in ways until even down to the contemporary period. But they, you know, Ibadi's produce medieval theological and legal works in which they discuss their opinions of him and they provide their historiography, which is slightly different from the Sunni or the Shi'a, and they make assumptions that are shared, but you know, sometimes they're they're also different. And so, um, you know, the, this narrative that they have that he was a legitimate caliph but then became misguided in his quest for power seems to be specific to them. Uh, And it differs, you know, that one, that image differs from the Uthmani portrayal and the Umayyad portrayal of him as someone who had been vicious or sinful throughout his entire life. And so the Ibadi chapter draws on uh, an Ibadi scholar of North Africa who's active in the 12th century of the Common Era. And then I complement his citations by um, looking at uh, other texts from other influential Ibadi thinkers, in which you see that they have this Khadiji legacy of anti-alidism, uh, and it also partially survives in their in their literature. But they also condemn the Khadijis for being too extremist and, you know killing or you know turning to violence for those who disagreed with them. Um, but you know, it's in digging into Ibadi works that I finally find uh, literature condemning the Prophet's grandsons Hassan and Hussein. Right, they're considered misguided for their association with Ali's political career and their support for him. Um, so, and it's also in Ibadi literature that we see that uh, there are a few cases where Muslims praise uh, the infamous assassin of Ali, Abdurrahman Ibn Muljim. Um, and so. You know, it's, it's difficult to find texts like that, but you have a few scholars who, who do that in the Ibadi tradition. So it was great to do these case studies um, on Al-Jahid, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, and the Ibadis. And of course, you know, choosing Ibn Taymiyyah was almost a no-brainer. He's this highly influential Sunni <laughs> scholar who's at, you know, who's, he, he has name recognition around the world today, at least in the Muslim world. Um the you know current conservative Salafi culture um, you know is at the forefront of this globalized movement of Islam and how Muslims practice and so you can name drop Ibn Taymiyyah and you know even a lay person who may have never read his work before will know who that person is, who that scholar is. And so you know people will assume that Ibn Taymiyyah is this uh, scholar which you know who can be relied on for all things related to theology and history and you know hadith uh access. he's sheikh al-islam like he's considered the most know- one of the most knowledgeable scholars uh in, in 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 islamic history that's how he's revered um and so i go into a little bit of you know providing some background to his life uh his his, his historical environment uh, since he is chronologically the last of the authors that I uh, consider in terms of providing a case study, we're better equipped to understand the context in which he wrote and in the, in the dynamics that led him to write one of you know, the longest and most comprehensive rebuttals of shi'a Islam ever written, his Hajj's Sunnah Nabawiyyah, And, uh, you know, I felt compelled to present his work because he's relying on that anti alid legacy in different ways. Uh, It's, we have pro alid Sunni scholars who are shocked in the ways that he revives or resurrects some of these anti alid arguments and they take him to task for that. And for, you know, this person who has such great name recognition, I wanted individuals to uh, be able to read his work. So I translate Relevant passages where he's talking about Ali and the Umayyads and Hussein when he's cr- critiquing uh, Ali and Hussein uh, for their decisions as political figures. Uh, you know, I try to find those relevant passages and translate them, present them in English, and I, I provide an appendix so people can see what were his views and why he's considered someone who seems to, you know, to have been. Um, criticized by his peers and later scholars for denigrating Ali and the household of the prophet. And, you know, I leave it to the reader to see um, if uh, they interpret his work that way as well.
0: Yeah. It was interesting to, uh, to, to read as somebody who's, who's not working on early Islam, but certainly familiar with uh, Ibn Taymiyyah and his writings. Um, I think it could probably be used in in different ways in classrooms too. that chapter, especially. So, um, mm-hmm. The other thing you do that uh, is interesting is you kind of take us back uh, out of the kind of anti-Alid um, rhetoric and sentiment um, by looking at the, the rehabilitation of Ali in some Sunni sources um, through various strategies like censoring or reinterpreting or amending. Um, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about these efforts to construct uh, a, an image of Ali that was different from both uh, the anti-Alid views, but also from from the Shia views.
1: Right. So when Sunnis rehabilitated uh, Ali's, you know, I guess I could call tarnished reputation from the Uthmanis and the Umayyads, uh, they used different techniques and tools to forge this new image that suited orthodoxy. It's one that didn't that rejected. Uh, this accusation or portrayal of him as evil. Um, and it was also one that rejected the she portrayal of him as the best companion after the prophet and someone who is impeccable and infallible. So it was this middle ground in which he is a righteous companion uh, in the midst of other righteous companions. And usually people ask, how is it that this occurred? Like what were the mechanics to it and, I, and what were some of the uh, driving forces that led it. And I'd say Ali was, this was, this occurred at a time in which Ali is not the only person to be rehabilitated. In fact, the companions as a whole are rehabilitated at this time. The doctrine of the Sahaba, the righteousness of companions or the trustworthiness and uh, their rectitude is, some, is a position that Sunnis come to hold after, you could say, a couple centuries of factionalism that divided people between pro-Ali, Umayyad, Uthmani, you know, you have uh, Mu'tazilis, you have the Kharijis, and all of these different groups are condemning these companions who are viewed as as the head of a faction, right? So Ali is the head of a faction, Mu'awiyah is the head of a faction, Aisha is the head of a faction. All of these political leaders were being condemned or these companions were being condemned by a rival group. And so what you have is this position that comes out of that that says, look, we can't continue to fragment ourselves in these ways and condemn all of these figures in these ways. And so uh, you see this movement among Ahl al-Hadith, among the Hadith scholars to say we're going to accept not only the religious and legal knowledge that these companions had, regardless of their political inclinations, but we are going to engage in this, um, uh, this principle, of charity, uh, principle of charity. We will read texts that seem to condemn them or show them doing bad things in charitable ways as not to be denigrating to them. Maybe it was a mistake or maybe um, you know they had the right to, to take this action that we may not consider to be correct or we will reject those texts altogether. They might be falsehoods spread by those who had some sort of incentive to denigrate these individuals. So this, this attitude or this assumption that companions are above uh, criticism be, takes hold as uh, a foundational claim of Sunnism to safeguard the reputation of all companions. And so Ali benefits from that, Mu'awiyah benefits from that, Aisha, Talha, Zubair, all of these individuals who had been previously uh, condemned at that time and so that's the starting point and now the mechanism to doing that is now when you come across texts that seem to condemn Ali or accuse him of things either you reject it altogether or you try to reinterpret it in a way that doesn't uh, make it seem so make his sin seem so egregious so for example uh, one, one text or one hadith that is still narrated in Sunni collections is uh, that the Prophet says, indeed the family of Abu Talib, meaning Ali's father and his family, are not my allies. And so the way that Hadith scholars understood this, even though it's narrated by Umayyad uh, transmitters, is that, well, it may be speaking of those Balabids or those members of the family who were not Muslim right, who are non-believers, and so the prophet is speaking about tribalism, and that faith uh, is the new uh, uh, link between uh, people, and it's not, they shouldn't be relying on their family connections, or another one that says the prophet angered, uh, that uh, Ali angered the prophet by uh, seeking to take uh, a second wife, uh by marrying the daughter of Abu Jahal, an antagonist to the Prophet. And that, OK, well, when Ali uh, attempted to do this, it's not that the Prophet, you know, for example, was condemning him. It's just that he was urging him not to engage in this and that it would be, some, it would be disrespectful to him or uh, to Fatima. But it's not so much uh, an action that would lead Muslims to condemn Ali altogether. Um, and there are many other examples of this. Uh, in fact, one technique was deflection, that previously Ali had been accused of a crime, but uh, once he was rehabilitated, rather than uh, the accusation uh, uh, falling on Ali, it now falls on Ali's companions, his close companions. So Ali wasn't at fault, but it was his companions who did it. So again, the uh, the murder of Uthman is one example of that. Early in Islamic history, Ali is accused of it, but after his rehabilitation, it's now just Ali's close companions who may have done it or people who, whom he knew, like Malik al-Ashtar or Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr and so on. So there are multiple techniques that uh, scholars use to uh, rehabilitate his image so that he is fallible, uh, rather than infallible, and righteous rather than evil, but uh, culpable of, or able to make mistakes, just like any other person makes mistakes.
0: Yeah, this, so this is a really fascinating book, and you cover a, a great deal of stuff, much of it, we won't be able to hop into the the weeds of uh, all the texts you get into. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if you tell us a little bit about some of the things you're working on now, and if uh, any other projects have kind of emerged out of out of your work in these sources.
1: The second book that I'm working on uh, is tentatively titled "Almost Shia Zeal for Ali and Sunni Islam." So, uh, in the second work, I try to follow the thread of those Mu'tazilis and Sunnis who believed who upheld Taftir Ali or the superiority of Ali to his peers, then I try to dig in to understanding how and why they claim that while uh, maintaining a non-Shi identity while, you know, ascribing to uh, either Mu'tazilism or Sunnism and what kept them from converting to Shi'ism. So I draw on, uh, basically these same types of sources i i i'm looking at hadith i'm looking at theological sources i'm looking at uh historiography and i hope to uh to work on on that book project for the next
0: few years great sounds sounds really fascinating well good luck and uh thanks for making time to talk about this great book
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to my conversation with Nabil Hussein on Opposing the Imam, the Legacy of the Nawasib in Islamic Literature, published with Cambridge University Press in 2021. We hope you'll join us for another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies in the future.